Hello and welcome to the Bristol to Beijing podcast. I'm Luke Grenfellshaw and I'm cycling from Bristol to Beijing on my tandem Chris. I left Bristol in January 2020 and it's fair to say it hasn't been straightforward so far. As I continue my expedition, I want to share the journey with you. And each episode, I'll be sharing my thoughts and experiences from the past week on the road. And occasionally, I'll also be chatting with someone who can shed some light on the country I'm in as I try and understand the world a little better. So, without further ado, what's happened this past week? How's the past week been for you, Luke? Okay, it's been an interesting past week. It hasn't been the easiest one so far. I've cycled about 500 kilometers from Aktau, right on the Caspian Sea, to this pretty small town called Bainau, which is about 85 kilometers away from the border with Uzbekistan. Hmm. And so it's been it's been a lot of cycling this past week, but it hasn't really been the easiest miles I've done. What in particular has made it tricky? Have you been on your own? Yeah, all of this distance has been by myself. Okay. Actually, I think that's made it easier for one particular reason, and that is because of water. Mm. To to explain this, I probably need to set the scene a bit. Right now, it is 38, 39, 40 degrees in the shade. And I'm cycling in the blazing sun all day. There, There is no shade at all. Mm. except for passing camels and they aren't really so handy to sort of shelter beneath Mm. and so I'm drinking something like 12 liters of water just whilst I'm on the bike wow that's that's a lot that's heavy it is and I don't really have space for 12 liters of water on my bike in the trailer Mm. but to think about doubling it and also doubling the amount of food that I'm carrying. Like there is absolutely not enough space. I would need to be getting rid of the sleeping bag and the tent and the, the stove and half my clothes. So, I mean, how do you even realize you need 12 liters of water? The first day you were on the bike in these sorts of conditions, did you take enough water with you? I've ended up sort of working that out because I've been realizing I need to sort of measure the amount of water and you know, I'm buying five litre bottles of water and you know two litre bottles of water and I'm I'm doing the maths. Actually from the off every single day I have not carried 12 litres of water with me. Mm. However, a number of Kazakh people have just stopped. They pulled their cars over and spontaneously said, oh is there anything that we can do to help And after a while, I was like, actually, yeah, I could really do with some water. Mm. And so probably about a third of the water I'm drinking, I've been given whilst I'm on the road. Um, Without that, I would have been in some really nasty situations, to Mm. be honest. I would have been super dehydrated. And if I put my run my hands on my like forehead, I just feel like this encrusted sort of sweat. Salty. Yeah, it's really quite, you know, physically challenging conditions. Mm. Were you prepared for it to be quite this physically difficult? You know, like more or less, yeah, I think I was. Like I was aware this was going to be a a tough leg. I wasn't as cognizant of the fact that it wasn't just going to be hot. And actually there's been quite a bit of a headwind at times as well, which is 
always great when you're going along at like 10 Ks an hour, but the distance between places is vast. And that's something mm. I knew, but mm. it's 50, 60, a hundred kilometers between tiny villages where there's like one shop that, you know, sells some water and some tinned stuff and some bread. Mm. But yesterday, the day that I cycled from this place called Sciotis to Bainau, where I am now, mm. that was 185 kilometers without a shop. Wow. Without any form of habitation, human habitation? Almost. After 100 kilometers, there were two houses. Oh, and one of them was a Chaikhana, mm. which I could buy some water there, which was just glorious it was so nice to drink uh, mm. I really got into sparkling water mm. I love the feeling of the the bubbles just bursting on your tongue absolutely so there was this this one chai harness so I had some food there I had I rehydrated heavily there uh, and then I carried on for another 85 kilometers but mm. that was it it sounds like it's quite sort of desolate abandoned unpopulated have you met many people whilst you've been traveling through there so it's definitely desolate and very, very low populated. It's not abandoned as such because it's not like there were lots of people there before. Mm. So there's just, it's just vast expanses of space. Though, of course, before the Soviet Union, there were a lot more nomadic people on the steppe and in mm. previous centuries. So, you know, in that sense, perhaps people have, they've become sedentary. They've, uh, their lives have focused around one very particular spatial place in you know, a village whereas mm. before they would just roam around the steppe I've met some really incredible people on the road people who just it's so it's so different from UK culture uh, like four or five people each day have just spontaneously pulled over their cars and just said oh can we do anything to help um you know, do you need any water? Do you need any food? Uh, where are you going? What are you doing here? <laughs> um, fair enough. I can't imagine they see many blue and pink tandems cycling across. <laughs> no, and particularly this past two years, there's been no one, no one mm. at all. Like right now, you can't enter Kazakhstan as a tourist, essentially. Okay. So yeah, before it's been quite a popular route with long distance cyclists, but mm. there just aren't those people now. Yeah. So I do, I do definitely stand out. Yeah. But I think, again, it's just something that I think from Georgia onwards, to an extent, perhaps Turkey, but certainly Georgia, Azerbaijan and here in Kazakhstan, there is just a totally different approach to how you treat a foreigner mm. or a stranger. And you try and help them and you give them what you can and you don't expect anything in return it's part of the culture and I also think it's something that people do willingly because it's not like everyone stops so I think the people mm. who did stop really wanted to help and I just think it was incredible that so many people did. So where have you been staying whilst you've been traveling this sort of rather expansive stretch? Yeah that's been interesting it's been a mix I spent one night just sleeping rough mm. in in the steppe which I found slightly disconcerting because I've met a lot of lorry drivers. They're some of the main other people on this route. Mm -hmm. And they were like telling me, oh, you know, I was like, I'm camping. I, I use a tent. And I'm And they're like, oh, there are, there are snakes and scorpions and wolves. Ah. And I was like, 
oh, um, hmm, I'm not so sure about camping. And I think that was actually really sad. I ended up what that night sort of putting up just the fly sheet because I was a bit like, oh, I don't want a scorpion to come in. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure people have been sleeping outside in the steppe for centuries. And I think scorpions only sting if you disturb them. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to be doing more camping outside, but I think I, I'm working up to it. So bear, bear with. Mm. When you've not been camping? One of the nights, a guy just stopped by the side of the road. He gave me a couple of apples. He gave me a bottle of Coke and said, oh, where are you going today? And I said, I'm going to this village. And he's like, oh, well, that's that's where I live. I have a shop there. You can come and stay with me overnight. And I was like, oh, that's really awesome. So, um, yeah, I ended up staying with this guy. And he was very kind, just sort of let me sleep on the floor of his place with a couple of workers in the shop and you know, had a shower, which is always um, it's not quite a necessity, but it's almost a necessity, particularly when you're covered in sweat. Mm. We had a very interesting conversation that I have reflected on quite a bit and I found very thought provoking. This guy is my age, but everyone asks me, you know, how old are you? Do you have a family? Do you have a wife? Do you mm. have children? And so I was asking, oh, do you have a wife? And it's like, yeah, I have a wife. She's working in Actau. And I was like, oh, you know, so she's working and he's like yeah but I, I don't want her to mm. I was like oh why not he's like well and this seemed very odd to my ears but he's like oh I want to be able to control her if she if she works and she has more independence from me and I she can do what she wants okay and I want to make sure that I'm in control of my family and she does what I I tell her to that's something that just yeah, doesn't really sound. It's not something we're not used to hearing, I guess, in the West, in the UK. Yeah, there was some very like for me some challenging things in there because he was also saying that you know, to him that basis of a relationship seemed to be one over power and control rather than both parties being in a relationship because they both want to be in it. And for mm. me, that seems to be an amazing motivator for both people to have a really rich and positive relationship because because you can walk away. Because if it doesn't serve either individual, then you're like, well, I will try something else and mm. I, I, I don't need this in our context, in our society. But to hear it in you know, a very different society that actually attitudes towards marriage towards relationships towards women mm. um are very different is a powerful reminder that in some ways the world doesn't think in the same way and mm. i think from the outside it's very easy and very very tempting to be critical of it uh, <laughs> and it's something i'm really struggling with yeah it's something that i personally would feel quite critical of but i think probably that's because I would feel like something like that seems almost a personal attack. I also wonder if it's something that, again, brings up the fact that for you, this trip is easier because you're male. Mm. And I wonder how easy a trip like this would be to do as a female. I, I think that's a really good question. I think in certain ways, I probably feel I'm comfortable and secure in ways I don't even realise because I'm a man. And mm. I imagine there are a lot of situations that for me just feel normal that could be feel probably incredibly insecure or threatening for a woman mm. um 
you know, I have also got the impression that there's a huge amount of respect for guests and travelers mm. in in Kazakhstan, in in Azerbaijan. And so I, I think it, you know, it's not as straightforward as it being a dangerous place for Western women to be, potentially, mm. but I'm not the best person to say that. And bad things can also happen. Yeah. So what was your reaction when this guy said that he he kind of wants to be able to control his wife? Well, I, I think part of it was a powerful reminder that not everyone thinks in the same way. And mm, a lot true. of the times when I'm traveling and people that I'm meeting are people who speak English, no matter mm. what country I'm in, people speak English. So they're probably quite well educated. They're probably from a kind of you know, a more liberal, tend to be more liberal background. Mm. But I suppose it's a huge privilege to be able to use my Russian and talk to people in their own language. And so you mm. get to hear, you know, much broader, you're able to talk with a much broader swathe of the population. Yeah. I mean, I found it very challenging. And for me personally, I fundamentally think that a relationship should be should be optional and mm. it will be richer if both parties think you have to really work it to sustain it and to, to make it a positive thing. So I think this idea that you can hold someone there against their will to me is anathema of, of what a relationship is about. But I think that encounter was maybe a reminder that that is possibly a very specific view that not everyone will share. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also, you know, there's there's a context here of being in a country, their culture is very rich. And I, I think that there are new influences that people have to decide whether work for them in, in their culture as well. Mm. Um, and I, I think that often these things come from a place of wanting the best for their family, wanting the best for their children and seeing that stability mm. perhaps coming from that control, you know, and it's a, it's a two way thing in, in a sense of, you know, the man would also then be expected to provide the the money and the salary. Yep. So there's a different set of responsibilities perhaps. Okay. So it's been a long, hard week for you. What does the week ahead look like? Well, that's the thing, Kate. This past week has been 500 kilometres in the sun through Kazakhstan. When I cross the border into Uzbekistan, I've got another 500 kilometres on a road that I've been told is of the worst quality mm. with fewer villages. So it's going okay. to be like this, but... Harder. Amplified. Yes. Yeah. I mean... That would make me feel quite apprehensive about doing it. How do you how do you get your head around the fact that you've got to repeat what you've just done, but in worse conditions? The way I get my head around it is I think it will take care of itself. Like one way or another, I'll be able to get through it. Mm. I might have to do some things that are relatively unpleasant for me, uh, you know, such as riding through the night because it's cooler then, mm. which will not be very much fun, but I'll I'll make it happen and I'll get it done. Mm. So I'm not so sort of try I'm trying not to think about it too much because I just don't quite know what the situation will be, but I'm sort of prepared that I might need to put in some pretty tough, tough days on the bike and yeah, get get to Nucus. But this isn't the country it was, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. You mm. know, there's a train line that's running pretty close to the road, mm. you know, like they're going to be lorries occasionally passing up and down. You know, it's not like 
I'm going to be in the middle of nowhere for days on end. You know, mm. there are safety nets. I think it's important to not overstate. This isn't going to be some like life or death situation or it suddenly shouldn't be. So, mm. And given that you've just done you know, 500 kilometres in quite tricky conditions, we've been sent through a question from Charles Garrett and he asks, which part of your body aches the most? <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Um, um it's not my legs actually they've begun to toughen up quite well and my mm. bum is still doing okay i'll tell you what it is it's actually my left shoulder okay um, i had an operation on my left shoulder back in 2018 mm. um to remove my primary tumor and a muscle went with that and i think ever since then my shoulder has been sort of a little bit destabilized mm. uh though generally day to day it's absolutely fine and it's Particularly when I'm going into the headwinds, and I'm really gripping and trying to hold the handlebars and mm. there's the two panniers on the front. So there's quite a bit of weight and I'm constantly working my shoulders. Yeah, it, there's something kind of internally in my shoulder that ends up aching a lot. So I'm doing a lot of sort of stretching and putting my arm on my leg on the uh, whilst I'm cycling and just giving mm. a bit of a break. So actually, for me, that's what aches the most. It's my left shoulder. Not necessarily the answer that would be expected there. I suppose not, but um, I'm not in the business of expected answers. <laughs> there we go. So next week we'll be chatting to you and hopefully you will have got through this, the next rough patch with plenty of water on board. I really hope so. I will be pretty relieved to get through this next bit because I just don't think it's going to be that much fun. Mm. Hopefully you might meet a few people on the way. Although obviously if it's more sparsely populated, that might be less likely. Who knows? We shall see. We shall see. But it's all an adventure. And I am still very aware that just to be able to cycle and travel is is amazing. And I mean, yeah, OK, 10 hours, 12 hours on a bike in one day. That's tough. But I mean, I'm cycling a bike. It's not that bad. No, there are worse things you could be doing. This is true. So I hope you have a good next week ahead. And we look forward to hearing from you in a week's time. All right. And that was this week's episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it and thanks so much for listening. We put a lot of time into the podcast, so please do support us by subscribing, reviewing and rating. And please send in your questions that you have about any aspect of life on the road to Bristol to Beijing on social media. Until next week, goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>